You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, and I'll be joined today by our other moderators, Yvette and Elisa. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. All legal podcasts have disclaimers, and this one is no exception. Our hosts are national security lawyers who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. National Security Law Today is the podcast about national security issues in the news. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. Please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, on Twitter at ABANATSEC, or on our Facebook page. This is part two of our conversation with John Rizzo. Mr. Rizzo is now a lawyer at the firm of Steptoe & Johnson, but he served for years in the CIA, including as chief legal officer and as acting general counsel. His memoir, Company Man, 30 Years of Controversy and Crisis in the CIA, tells that story. You can listen to last week's episode for the first part of our conversation with Mr. Rizzo, or start on part two right now. You, you did mention Jose Rodriguez, and you uh, talk at length, at least it's indeed the first part of the book, you talk about your frustration with Jose Rodriguez's unilateral decision to destroy the tapes of enhanced interrogation techniques. Um, my understanding from your, from your book is that that decision was because the CIA operatives were clearly identifiable and it was out of an abundance of caution with protecting their identities. Um, but you did not endorse the decision and you, you know, kicked it to the White House and you consulted with outside authorities, inside authorities, and for years the tapes were not uh, meant to be destroyed. And then he decided that he was going to go ahead. And, I, you know, when I was uh, talking about your book, I really, it was really interesting read, talking about your book. And I was just thinking, you know, as a former military member and person who worked in the Pentagon, I wouldn't imagine doing anything at all that the general counsel said was, you know, verboten, right? I, you expressed frustration in the book about that decision. You know, how do you feel about that now? Well, I was very upset at the time. I mean, to be clear, Jose Rodriguez was the head of covert operations. He had been clear for a couple of years from, frankly, first when the, shortly after the tapes were first uh, presented that he wanted to destroy them. And uh, I told him uh, repeatedly, of course, I didn't, I thought that was a terrible idea. I mean, we're all we we're all lawyers here, you know. Regardless of legality, illegality, you have videotapes of a controversial activity. These the techniques being these techniques being applied, and you destroy those tapes. I mean, you know, regardless of legality, that just doesn't look good. Uh, it makes it looks like you're hiding something. So that was part of my reason for me telling him he could not do that on his own authority. The other part, as you alluded to, Yvette, was that it wasn't just me. It was the CIA director. It was the DNI, Director of National Intelligence, the White House counsel 
two successful White House counsel, who also ordered and demanded that the tapes not be destroyed without their prior approval. And I conveyed all of this repeatedly to Mr. Rodriguez. And nonetheless, he chose to dis, uh, destroy them without me knowing about it. So, yes, I, it's fair to say I was quite upset. I like Jose. I, I still stay in touch with him. But that was, uh, that was pretty uh, shocking to me. And it led to, let us recall, a three-year criminal investigation, uh, extensive congressional investigations. So, I mean, I just... Again, this is years ago, but it was a big mistake. I was upset by it. But final point, I do understand and accept his rationale for doing it. Not that it was to obstruct any investigations, but that these tapes revealed faces of CIA operatives, and if the tapes were to leak, these operatives would be in jeopardy. So uh, I wonder. So after those, all of those. In- investigations, no one was uh, sanctioned, right? Um, No one was fired. No one was disciplined. How do you feel about that? I think that's something that's frustrating to some of the critics of the the program. Yeah, I understand that. Actually, Mr. Rodriguez was ultimately, the the criminal investigation resulted in no indictments. I mean, it was a grand jury investigation. But after that, there was an internal CI review uh, launched by then CIA Director Petraeus. Mind you, by that time, I was long gone from CIA, which ultimately resulted in a reprimand for Mr. Rodriguez. Now, Mr. Rodriguez, he actually retired from CIA before I did. So, so he was disciplined, but, you know, I understand uh, some people feeling that was not, you know, too little, too late. You know, to be honest with you, one of the things that I think is fascinating about your book and just about life in general and the hot seat as a lawyer in national security is I feel like uh, the person who took the brunt of all of this was frankly you. I mean, you were the fella dragged down to the hill over and over again. You were the fella who had to brief Porter Goss, Jane Harmon, and I must say, you're, you've, you've got some metal, because it is outrageous to me. And on the other hand, uh, speaks highly of you that you went down and, and took all this on. Um, and were candid with Congress, it sounds like, um, even though they didn't particularly want to hear it. Yeah, I was in an unfortunate position as when this whole story broke. I was the last one standing at CIA in the senior position from when the times when the tapes were created and destroyed. So uh, it was true that that uh, that I wound up having to go to the uh, to the Congress uh, for several hours of closed sessions. Mind you, just me. I was not allowed to bring any support staff. Well, you are a snappy dresser, so if I had a choice, you'd be the guy that I would send if I were in charge. It is too bad. This is radio. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, and I was was getting hammered for a decision I played no part in. But, you know, one thing, getting back, you know, getting away from myself personally, but one thing that was a being a CIA lawyer for as long as I was, 
is that it is an incredibly rewarding experience, the impact you can have, the, the service to your country you fear making every day. On the other hand, you're also out there on the precipice all the time, and, uh, and when things go wrong, even when you know, things go wrong despite your own efforts, yeah, you, know, you get singed. Uh, and you don't get to testify in light disguise, as intelligence <laughs> officers are permitted to do under the Gregorio case. No, yeah. you have to show up uh, in the best suit, which you always have the best suit, <laughs> and just deal with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it, as I say, it's a rush, but it, sometimes it's a, you know, it's a bad rush. It turned me into a late in my career. Keep in mind. At least the first 25 years of my career, I was happily under the radar. 9-11 happens, the interrogation program, my name comes out, I get nominated, and I become, you know, this this public, controversial, in some quarters, notorious figure. You know, many men try to be Washington alpha dogs. It feels to me like you were shoved into that role. <laughs> I didn't, yeah, I, it was some, a role... Let's say I would never have anticipated on September 10th, 2001. How many times did you end up testifying? During the course of my career or, or for, for... For these programs. Uh, well, uh, counting my nomination in 2007, in which this program was virtually the f- sole focus of my confirmation hearings, which is, by the way, was, was in public and can still be found on the... C-SPAN. I can't recommend it. I can't recommend it. It's uh, fairly well, gruesome. Probably get a flavor for the wardrobe. Uh, I had to, uh, you know, I had to testify in the wake of the tapes destruction before the House and the Senate. Closed sessions. Let me see. Well, if you want to count testifying before the uh, gra- criminal grand jury investigating the tapes destructions, <laughs> That was another five-hour uh, uh, day at the beach, so I had to, I had to, um, you know, it put me into a uh, into a difficult spot. So on the um, on the topic of the testimony and your relationship with Congress, one of the things that really was interesting about your book to me was how apolitical you really were. You really, you know, you had choice words and admiration for people on both sides of the aisle, and I, I think that you made a, a very clear attempt to be fair, but as you note, like, these these programs get very political very fast, right? How do you feel about, you know, the nature of Congress and how it impacts the work, you know, the, the work that the agency is trying to do? Yeah, I... Uh yeah, that's a fascinating question. The uh, congressional oversight of CIA it actually began uh, right about the time that I arrived at CIA in 1976. Before that, there were no congressional intelligence committees. I wasn't the cause of that, but I mean, it just happened. <laughs> <laughs> it just happened. Coincide. Everything's your fault. <laughs> hey, you didn't have to testify before the church committee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The church committee actually is what caused me to apply to CIA. I was watching those hearings on TV aboard a guy just out of law school, and I'm thinking, boy, I don't know if CIA has lawyers, but they may need, need some. some. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but on congressional relations between CIA and the Congress, you know, for many years, and this is even 
through the mid-1980s, the Iran-Contra investigations, the, the committees, especially the Senate Intelligence Committees, were, were truly nonpartisan. Wow, when, those were the salad days, huh? Yeah, I mean, when CIA screwed something up, like the Iran-Contra affair, you know, we had critics from both sides of the aisle. You know, it happened to be a Republican administration, but Republicans on the committee, notably a, a wonderful guy named Warren Rudman from New Hampshire. I mean, they were harshly critical. Dick Cheney was on the House Intelligence Committee at the time. He was critical. The point was that, that it was nonpartisan. It didn't matter who was in the White House. Unfortunately, beginning in the, I would say, early 90s and, and with a brief respite right after 9-11 because of the bipartisan support uh, at that point, the, the Congressional Intelligence Committees have become, frankly, just another congressional committee where each side stakes out their political side and sticks to it, which is unfortunate because uh, I think that detracts from really credible, legitimate oversight. I think to your point, your overarching point is it is fantastic that um, we have some insight through these oversight committees, but unfortunately the truth is the good work of the CIA is really never seen. The bad work of the CIA uh, makes the news. Yes, yes. Well, that's the Faustian bargain you make when, you, uh, when you're part of CIA. Um, it's just the way it is, and I wish I could say it is, uh, there is hope but um, we're seeing it now with the uh, with the um, Haspel nomination. So what advice would you give to a young lawyer who's considering coming into the CIA? Or we, we've looked at USA Jobs recently, and there's some openings. Um, what, uh, <laughs> what advice would you give to a young lawyer who is considering uh, following in your footsteps in CIA? Well, I was with you, Yvette, to following in my footsteps part. Uh, <laughs> can't say I would recommend that, uh, although I got a great book deal out of it. But um, no, I would, uh, and I actually do that to this day. Young lawyers seek me out, third-year law students and also young people with a few years uh, practice under their belt to inquire about whether I would, to, you know, would recommend them or support it. I think, I think this, to my mind, it's, it's a, certainly the, the best legal job inside any uh, intelligence uh, or, or foreign po- policy agency. Lawyers at CIA, and this is true actually w- uh, when I began and it's continued to be the case now, CIA lawyers have more impact internally on the everyday mission of the CIA than I would say, from my observations, lawyers at DOD, uh, State Department, any other federal agency. So it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful place, exciting place, but you, know, you have to go in there figuring there will be some, could be some risk down the, down the line because, because when you're given such uh, influence, uh, of course you're, you're wedded to whatever controversies uh, emanate. But it's, it's a wonderful place. For whoever who's listening, I wouldn't I wouldn't have changed a minute of it. Wow, it's quite an endorsement. All right, well, uh, John Rizzo, the book is Company Man, 
Um, it is available, of course, on Amazon and uh, any other platform or bookseller. It is an interesting read. Um, I, I would have to tell our listeners, uh, it's, it's not all this heavy, weighty, leaden stuff. <laughs> the best line of the entire book, and I'll apologize for doing this, but and this resonates, but you're talking about John, Chuck Kogan. You said, Chuck Kogan most looked the part. That is to say, he looked the way people on the outside imagine a CIA spoof to look. In reality, most of them look like insurance salesmen. (laughs) That was awesome. Um, I want to thank you so much. If uh, you're a young lawyer out there and you haven't read this book, uh, I think you know exactly what you need to look at uh, to get a better sense. It is very interesting, and our sign-off is normally if you want to sit on the sidelines uh, or if you go want to get off and get into the game. Uh, Mr. Rizzo has definitely... Been uh, played all positions on the field, been the coach, uh, and been there and back. <laughs> so you should read his book. Thank Absolutely. You. Thank you. So thank you, uh, John Rizzo, for coming and spending uh, time and recounting your fascinating career with us here today. And thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security of the American Bar Association. Tune in again soon for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff where you will never get the recommended daily dose of vitamin D, or you're smart enough to know the national security law gives you a front row seat to history, and you don't want to sit on the sidelines or watch life from a distance, then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for tuning in, but remember, social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences, and check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, and follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Thank you.